John 8, verse 1 says, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. Uh, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The title of the sermon this evening is just that, Go and Sin No More. Let's pray. God, help us tonight as we seek to understand the, the Bible as it's written. Lord, the last thing I want to do is contaminate or change or alter the truths that are here. And so, Lord, help them to be accurately preached and explained. Uh, Spirit of God, would you please work in each heart here tonight to the saved Would you uh, convict us and lead us to to live in truth? Anyone here tonight that may be not uh, a follower or believer, help them, Lord, to uh, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of salvation. And we pray, God, that you would just guide us. Lord, help us tonight uh, to be people who uh, seek to live lives that are holy and pure, not just lives that are uh, good in the sight of uh, other fellow Christians or uh, Lord, uh, worried about our reputation, but Lord, help us to live our lives in a way that honor you and please you. Uh, Lord, even in those darkest of times when no one is watching us or in those privacy of moments when no one knows what's going on, may we honor you with our choices in those times as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is a story that has many, many levels of complexity to it. And the more I dug into the story, the more complex I began to see it to be. But just on a surface level, the story is quite simple. Uh, Jesus comes down out of the Mount of Olives where likely he was praying. The Bible does not tell us that he was praying in verse 1, but likely he was. We know he retreated there often for a time of prayer. He comes down into the temple. He's sitting there. And he is teaching, and all of a sudden, his teaching is interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of that day. And they have a woman by the arms. They throw her down in front of Jesus in the middle of his teaching, and they say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. They have stones in their hands. They say, Moses' law says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? They're trying to catch Jesus and trap him. Jesus ignores them. He begins to write in the sand. and uh, They continue to press him and ask him. And so finally, Jesus very calmly and meekly rises up and stands up and he says, 
He that is with he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. He then proceeds to play in the sandbox or to write in the sand. One at a time, these men's consciences begin to get to them. They drop their stones where they are, and one at a time, from the eldest to the youngest, they leave. When Jesus looks back up the second time from writing in the sand, it's just him and the woman. And he says to her, he says, woman, where are thine accusers? She said, there are no accusers. And he says, well, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, um, there are a few extremes of how grace and truth are understood. And in this, in this story, we find that Jesus is just as John described back in chapter 1. He is a perfect balance of grace and truth. And you may remember that God, uh, Jehovah God and the Father in the Old Testament is described as a balance of mercy and truth. Jesus comes on the scene in John 1 and He is described by John as being a God of grace and truth. And we see that Jesus in this story is both grace and truth. And let me just say that a lot of people have a bad opinion of religion and generally those bad, that bad opinion of religion comes because grace and truth in some way or another have gotten out of balance. I have, uh, like you, have seen many churches that are out of balance because they emphasize grace and they minimize Truth. There's a minimalizing of truth and an emphasizing of grace. And uh, a church where grace is overemphasized and truth is minimalized uh, looks something like you can uh, wear what you want, talk like you want, uh, uh, act like you want, sing whatever you want. Uh, you, uh, holiness is less important. What matters is that Jesus saved you and you just enjoy community and you have a good time in life. And you know what? Uh, raise your family, raise your kids, have fun and uh, Listen, uh, there's grace there if you step a little too far across the line and you just go out and have a great time and uh, they minimize truth. Churches like this, they don't want to preach the whole counsel of God. They, they want to stay away from talking about sin. I told someone on the phone this week that I found, find that churches land in one of three categories when it comes to hard truths. You have churches that are willing to preach on it. You have churches who, uh, uh, rather, you have churches who stand right where the Bible is. You have churches that cower to the culture and bend their belief to the culture and uh, they're willing to go along with the culture. But then there's a third category and it's this middle ground where, well, we uh, believe what the Bible says, but we're never going to talk about it because that might offend somebody and then that would keep them from coming to our church. And uh, listen, uh, Grace says we're not going to pay it. We're going to turn a blind eye to culture and sin. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to preach against it. And uh, we're going to let it be. We're going to let it exist in our church. And um, uh, listen, we're not going to have any standards of who can be members. Everybody come. Everybody's welcome. Come as you are and leave as you were. As long as you feel good on the way out the door, then we have accomplished our task. And this is a church where grace is overemphasized and truth is greatly minimalized. But then you have the other end, and this has hurt just as many people. And this is where truth is overemphasized. And grace is greatly minimalized. What kind of a church do you get when a truth is ramrod? You're just hit over the head with truth all the time, and there's very little grace shown when someone steps out of bounds. I have seen churches that love, I mean, they love church discipline. 
Someone does something just wrong, and I mean, they're ready to throw them out of the church publicly in front of everyone, and uh, they're uh, uh, correcting people left and right. They've got people getting up from behind the pulpit on a regular basis, apologizing for something that they said or did wrong. It, it's it's truth. It's take the Bible and, and not help them, but whack them upside the head with it and make sure that they uh, are hurt by it. I heard of a, uh, a, a preacher who really felt that having tattoos was a sin and felt that women wearing uh, pants was a sin and uh, felt that any sort of, uh, uh, of these things was wrong. And so he would have a sermon in his Bible, but when someone came in the door, uh, someone came in the door wearing a tattoo, he would put that sermon away and he'd just preach on tattoos for 45 minutes. You know what this is? This is an overemphasis of truth and a, a, a minimalizing of grace. And you know what? Jesus was... The perfect balance of grace and truth. Someone once said that uh, Christians ought to be a ball of steel wrapped in layers of velvet. It ought not be that you just run around breaking everything you see in sight with truth. But at the same time, if all you are is a ball of velvet uh, and there's no steel there, you have no backbone. And uh, listen, you are you can accomplish nothing and you are of no effect. Christians, we need to have a solid backbone of truth of what we believe, but we need to learn how to be gracious and uh, kind to everyone around us. And that's exactly what Jesus was. He was firm in His truth, but yet He was kind in His approach. The moment that you bowed your head and with a poor in spirit, uh, a poor in spirit attitude accepted Jesus as your Savior, you understood what it was to be a full recipient of God's great grace. Your sins were forgiven. Your name sealed in the Lamb's book of life. You became a child of God. You became a citizen of heaven. Uh, your salvation is secure. Your salvation is Final, if you have believed, then you are going to go to heaven when you die. By the way, I do believe after doing much study and research on this, I believe that uh, everyone's name begins in the book of life. Everyone's name begins there. And either your name is sealed in that book uh, when you uh, go, uh, pass on into the other life, or your name is blotted out of that book uh, when you die. And if you choose to believe, your name is sealed. If you choose not to believe in Jesus, your name is blotted out. You say, well, what happens to me if my name is sealed? Well, guess what? It's sealed with a wax seal. There's no erasing or blotting your name from there. You are going to heaven, but if your name is blotted out, of the book of life, then my friend, you're not going to go to heaven. God is going to cast you into hell because a just God cannot let unforgiven sin uh, and sin that's not been dealt with and sin that's not been pardoned and sin that's not been forgiven. God cannot let a holy God cannot let that filthiness into his very presence. God is gracious, but God is also Truth. Now, um, if you have believed you're going to go to heaven when you die, regardless of how you live, but that is not what God wants for you. God does not want you to run around and abuse grace. In fact, this goes hard against the grain of what God made you to be the moment He saved you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that we are made to be, what church? New creatures. Say it with me. New creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Uh, this is the teaching or the belief of regeneration. This same thought is laid out to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where Jesus said, Marvel not that I say to thee, you must be saved with me, church, born again. Uh, to be born again and to be a new creature, uh, that's the same concept of being uh, regenerated in Christ. And the moment that He saved you, uh, He adopted you. Uh, John 3 says he, you're born in the family of God. John 1 and Romans 8 tell us that we are adopted into the family. We're made joint heirs with Christ. And the moment that He saves you, He calls you to a work and He expects you to live your life different than you did before. Look at John 8 verse 12. Right after Jesus gets through dealing with this woman uh, who was caught in adultery, look at verse 12, Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He looks at this woman and he says, Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn thee. I'm not going to have you stoned. Go and sin no more. Then he turns to the crowd and he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Listen, uh, Christian, the moment that you gave your heart to the Lord, He put a light inside of you called the Holy Spirit and you are to walk in light, you are to walk in truth, and you are to walk away from sinful living. So uh, I believe that if you're truly saved, then there will be a change in your desires to follow the light and avoid living in darkness. Now, I'm going to walk a very careful line here. Church, please listen to me. There's a lot of false teaching out there. Uh, there's a lot of pharisaicalism out there. I am not a fruit inspector in the sense of that I don't go and look at someone and say, well, I don't see any evidences in their life, so I don't think they ever actually got saved. You know what I'm not? I am not your God. It's not my place to decide whether or not you got saved. That is between you and the Lord. But I will say this, the Bible says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen, if you got you prayed the prayer to be saved and not one thing inside of you changed, you need to be doing some serious trembling and searching of your soul on whether or not you ever actually did get saved. Because the moment that I got saved, there became a tenderness inside of me to want to follow the Lord. I told the Spanish ministry this morning that uh, I, I've known the story of the cross since I was just a little boy. But when I sit and ponder about what Jesus did for me on that cruel tree, and when I stop and ponder about how much He suffered, I stop and think about how my sins drove the nails into His hands and His feet. And my iniquities were the ones that laid the, the stripes on His back with those cattle and nine tails and, and my transgressions pushed the, the crown of thorns down into his skull and it was my wickedness that spit in his face. It was uh, my horrible actions that pulled the beard from his face. It was me that nailed into that cross. He went to the cross for me and no matter how many times I hear the story, I cannot help but get tender hearted and teary eyed as I think about what Jesus did for me. And you know what? It isn't just enough to feel something inside about the sacrifice of Jesus. That, uh, that feeling ought to spawn you. It ought to motivate you. It ought to push you to get up and go do something for the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to cause you to want to set aside sin and set aside that which displeases the Savior. It ought to cause you to want to live a life that's more and more and more holy and sanctified in the sight of the Lord. That's why Jesus said, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, 
but shall have the light of life. I ask you tonight, if you've prayed the sinner's prayer of repentance, has there been any change in your life? Have you set aside darkness? Are you walking in the light of life? Are you walking in the truth? Jesus said to this woman after He forgave her, He said, Go and sin no more. And I want to ask you, are you living a go and sin no more lifestyle or has very little changed since you got saved? I know for my father, when he got saved, he got five or ten years removed from that decision, really a year or two removed from that decision, and he turned around and looked back at his father and uh, the way he had lived, and he looked at his mother, the way she was living, he looked at his brothers, the way they were living, and listen now, there was a stark contrast between the way he had chose to live and the way that they were living. Why? Because he was walking in the light of life while they were walking in darkness. And my friend, if you prayed a prayer and you're not changed, and walking in light, then you need to take a big step back and examine your heart. Has anything changed? Some of you here tonight, you prayed that prayer and you left behind a family who is still living in sin. If you're still living like them and talking like them and acting like them, you really need to dig deep and see whether or not you truly even put your faith in Christ to begin with. We're going to look at three thoughts this evening as we dissect this story in great depth. All right, let's take a look. There's three uh, key players in this story. Uh, there's the woman uh, who was caught in adultery. There are the Pharisees, and then there's Christ. So we're going to take some time first and look at the woman, and then we'll look at the Pharisees, and then we'll look at Christ. Number one, notice the woman's adultery. The woman's adultery. Look with me at John chapter eight, and look at verse number three. The Bible says, "And the scribes and Pharisees." Uh, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Letter A, let's first look at her sinful crime. Her sinful crime. Now, that word crime is not an overstatement. Uh, this was a crime against Moses' law that carried with it a death Penalty. The Old Testament, the Jews were given three types of laws by God Himself. Here were the three classifications of all of the Old Testament laws. All of the Old Testament laws fall under one of these three categories. Some of them would fit under more than one category. Here they are. They were they're, they're dietary laws, there are civil laws, and there are moral laws. Dietary laws, civil laws, and Moral laws to commit adultery was a violation of a moral law that had, uh, that had been given directly by God to Israel. Exodus chapter 20 in verse 14. Exodus 20, we find the Ten Commandments. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with our fellow man. Exodus 20 verse, verse 14. You already know it. Say it with me. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God meant business when He gave this command. You were to remain sexually pure to your vows and only be sexually with your husband or wife and no one else. To be clear, adultery can be committed by a single person. That would be the physical sexual involvement of a single man or woman with a married person. Listen now, sexual sin is almost yawned at in most church cultures today. In most church cultures today, sexual sin is 
yawned at. Uh, it's, it's ignored. You say, well, that can't be. Let me remind you, at Stratford Day Festival, most of the churches had rainbow flags displayed uh, at their displays. All right, So sexual sin in church culture, and I'm speaking broadly, is yawned at, and in some cases it is celebrated. It is celebrated. But let me just say that, in fact, uh, I may be the last... Uh, uh, hold on, let me, let me uh, back up here. Um, uh, uh, this may be, uh, adultery may be the last sexual sin that's universally agreed upon. You go find anyone who celebrates any sexual sin and ask them if it's wrong for a man to cheat on his wife or a wife to cheat on her husband, and almost everyone will universally say, yep, that's a bad one. Yep, don't do that. You go find a devout Christian, you go find a God-hating person and ask them, is it wrong to cheat on your spouse and to break your marriage vows? And almost everyone will say, yeah, that one's still really bad. That one's still really uh, wrong. Now, uh, let me help us tonight with this idea of sexual sin. Sexual sin. I believe sexual sin has such a grip on our culture and not just our culture at large. I believe sexual sin is the underbelly, uh, 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 the, the, the unspoken, silent killer of churches. I think it rots, uh, rots the souls uh, of, of church members out. It, it is attacking Christians. Uh, uh, let me give, it, give you this thought this evening. The Bible does not talk about homosexuality. That word is not found in the Bible. Uh, that term is not found in the Bible. Instead, you find this term, unnatural affection. Unnatural affection. So what, it, for us to understand what is unnatural affection, we need to take a half a step back first and understand what is natural affection. And for us to understand what is natural sexual affection, we back all the way up to Genesis 2 and 3, and we, or 1 and 2, and we understand that God made the sex act to be between a husband and a wife inside the confines of marriage. So what is natural affection? Natural affection is a husband and wife inside of marriage. In fact, Hebrews 13 tells us marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled, but whoremongerers and adulterers God will judge. So if natural affection is that between a husband and wife, then any other sexual activity outside of that would be unnatural affection. So unnatural affection is any and all other such activity and is a violation of God's moral law. I made a list here. I don't know that it's complete. I think it's pretty complete. I may have missed something, but I made a list here of all of the things that would be unnatural affection. Here's what I put down. Pornography, premarital sex, extramarital sex, same gender sex, uh, 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 polygamous sex, sexual relations with an animal, and are all heavily condemned in the Bible. All of these things are unnatural affection. You say, where does the Bible address pornography? Let me remind you that both uh, the psalmist and the prophet made about the same statement when they said, I will not look upon a maiden to lust after her in my eyes. Jesus directly talked about it in Matthew 5, 28, when he said, He that looketh upon a woman to lust hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. Understand that these are sinful crimes. They may or may not break a country's law, but they do violate God's law. God is a judge and will punish wrongdoing. The woman's adultery, we see letter A, her sinful crime. Letter B, we see her serious consequences. Look at verse number 4 and 5 of our text. John 8, verse 4 and 5. The Bible says, They say unto him, Master, 
this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Way back, take your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Way back in Moses' time when God was laying down the commands for His people, He also laid out the punishment for the violation of the laws. Now, I was a school teacher for two years, and I have worked with, I've been a parent now for 14 years. Let me just tell you what I've learned about working with anyone is that if you don't have teeth to your to 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 uh, your your orders, then uh, those orders are going to get walked all over. People are not going to obey unless there are some repercussions to uh, disobedience. And so God didn't just say, thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then in the re-giving of the law, which is the book of Deuteronomy, He lays down the severe consequences for breaking the law of committing adultery. And God wasn't messing around. If you were caught in an adulterous relationship, you faced death. Look at Deuteronomy 22 and verse 21. The Bible says, Then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house. And the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she hath wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. So uh, in the Old Testament, if you were a woman and you were caught in adultery, you were to be taken outside the city limits, you were to be put in a pit, and men were to stone you until you died. God was not playing around in the Old Testament. Now, because we live in the era of the new covenant of grace, we don't believe in stoning people who have committed the sin of adultery. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. However, there are still grave consequences for someone who digs their soul into unnatural affection. When you go playing around with unnatural affection, and I gave you the list a few moments ago, when you go playing around with that, you are going to heap upon yourselves pain and suffering of soul. God will punish you. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Look at verse 13. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication. Notice that again. What does the word fornication mean? I heard a preacher say one time, write down the two words sex sins on a piece of paper and draw a giant circle around it and anything that fits inside that circle is fornication. Is Fornication. So the Bible says here that the body is not for fornication. That means if you are involved in these sexual activities, that is unnatural affection because your body was not made for that. The Bible goes on and says, but uh, rather the body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised the Lord and will also raise us, uh, raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I take then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot. God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But uh, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Notice this next verse, 18. Flee fornication. You know what the word flee means? It means turn around and run in the opposite direction. It means be nowhere near it. It means that when you see anything that is a temptation and sexual sin, you need to book it in the opposite direction. Flee fornication. Look at this, and here's the reason why. 
Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Someone says, well, pastor, uh, sexual sins are just the same as all, any and all other sins. All sin is equal in the sight of God. And I would say that is, that is not accurate. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul makes it very clear that every other sin is without the body, but whoever is wrapped up in these sins of fornication, they are sinning against their own body. They are damaging and wounding their own body. By the way, if you were going to be passionate against the LGBTQIA plus alphabet soup, then you make sure you are equally passionate against premarital sex and pornography. Whole lot of Christians want to get on their high horse and rail on Pride Month. And I am against Pride Month. I went up to West Hartford to meet a friend uh, for lunch earlier this week, and I had to drive across a rainbow crosswalk, and I, it turned my stomach to do that. I don't like it. But listen, a whole lot of Christians want to rail on sins they're not involved in while they're involved in their own sin that no one else knows about. These sins damage the soul of a person and rot them from the inside out. I asked a pastor friend recently what percentage of men in our churches are wrapped up in pornography. He said, I believe it's somewhere around 70%. 70%. And by the way, men are not the only ones wrapped up in pornography anymore. Maybe we don't have any ability to stand up against sin because we ourselves are crippled by it also. Satan has thrown that hook in the water. And it's not only hurt our culture at large out in the open. It's hurt Christians in private. It's hurt Christians quite deeply. We see here the woman's adultery. Number two, notice the Pharisees' ambush. The Pharisees' ambush. Letter A, notice their setup of the woman. They're set up of the woman. Let's go back to John chapter 8, at least the story of John 8. And uh, I I, I laid the story out here for you a moment ago. Uh, This woman was clearly caught red-handed. I mean, she was caught, they say, in the act. And never one time does this woman deny that she was uh, uh, having sexual relations as either a married woman or with a married man. She never denies it. In fact, when she's left alone with Jesus, she doesn't even try to make her case that she's innocent. She just sits there and waits for his uh, sentencing or waits for his uh, verdict. I find it peculiar that they caught her in the very act. I find that extremely odd. Now, what's going on here? What's going on here? Are these guys like peeping in through her window of her bedroom watching to see what she's doing. Um, How did they know that she was in the act of committing adultery? Now, uh, I have never, ever, one time, ever walked in on a couple committing adultery. And I doubt anyone here has ever walked in on a couple in the act of committing adultery. That is... Weird. Alright? Now, while there might be some circumstances where it is technically possible that they just happen to walk in on a space where this is happening, I, 
I don't know that I see that. Also, Pharisees, where is the man that was committing adultery with the woman? How come you didn't bring him? Go back to Deuteronomy 22. We looked at 21 and saw how the damsel would be stoned, but God does not leave the man out of this equation. He doesn't have one standard for women and another standard for men. No, both are held to the same standard. Why did they not bring the man who was lying with her? Moses' law states that both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be put to death. We looked at verse 21 of Deuteronomy 22. Look at verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman, married to an husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lie with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. Go over to Leviticus chapter number 20. Now, I said Deuteronomy was the re-giving of the law. Leviticus would have been part of the original giving of the law. And uh, this consequence was laid out even in the original giving of the law. Go back to Leviticus and look at chapter 20. And look at verse number 10 with me. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Uh, Moses was very clear that both the adulterer and the adulteress would face the same punishment. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, I don't think Moses' law could be more clear, could it not? Both the man and the woman deserve to die. And so if this woman is committing adultery, why did you bring her? Where is the man? This was a setup. It sure seems like this whole thing was a setup to try to trap Jesus in his words. Was the whole thing conspired? Had one of them of their own ranks lured her into an adulterous affair so that they could turn this around on Jesus? We don't know that, but somehow they knew that the very act was happening and they were able to pounce into the bedroom at that very moment. Boy, it sure seems like this whole thing is contrived. One of their own men likely involved and they left him out of it just so they could try to stick it to Jesus. So we see the setup of the woman talking about the Pharisees' ambush. Let her be noticed their strategy against Christ. Look at verse number four. Go back to John chapter eight and look at verse number four. Now Jesus is sitting there and he's teaching and uh, clearly in the courtyard of the temple because there's dirt there, sand there that he's going to ride in. He's in the courtyard of the temple. He's teaching. He's got a crowd gathered around him, probably a large crowd gathered around him, and they interrupt and throw this woman down in front. Verse 4, they say unto him, Master. Now, they never called him Master before, but now they're going to all of a sudden elevate him. By the way, before we read any further, you did not bring an adulterer or an adulteress before a rabbi. You brought an adulterer or adulteress in front of a Levitical priest. It was the Levitical priest's job to condemn uh, to death. And so they weren't even correct in bringing her to Jesus. They were doing this as a total set up a strategy to try to put him in a conundrum and see if they couldn't get him twisted up in his own words and his own ideology. But we see them elevating him up really quick on a plane in order to try to Tear him down. So they call him master. Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, tempting him, 
that they might have to accuse him. So John lays out the motives for us. We know that they were constantly planning and scheming to catch Jesus in some kind of double standard of either his behavior or his doctrine. Look at Luke chapter 20 and verse number 20 with me. Luke should just be a few few pages to the left there. Luke chapter 20 and verse number 20. We know that they had a, a, a network of spies and plants to try to uh, uh, gather as much information on Jesus as they could so that they could plot against him. Look at Luke chapter 20 and verse 20. The Bible says, And they watched him and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him under the power and authority of the governor. Imagine that, uh, you had plants and spies walking around uh, pretending to be favorable of you and writing down everything you say and then reporting back to a group of people who were nefarious in their actions and trying to tear you apart. Moses commanded that the woman should be stoned, but Jesus was seen eating with publicans and sinners. Now those two things don't jive. Now, remember in the beginning of the sermon, in the introduction, I talked about imbalance of grace and truth. You know what the Pharisees were? They were really good at applying grace to themselves and over-applying truth to everybody else. Holding everyone else to the highest of standards and, and even in their Talmud, inventing things that weren't even in the original uh, writing of the law and holding people to this and being ready to stone the woman. They didn't just throw her down with a question. They threw her down with rocks in their hands ready to stone her on the spot. Jesus had been seen with publicans and sinners. Now what does that mean, sinners? Well, it is widely believed by those who study the Bible, that in that crowd of sinners involved harlots, involved people who had been involved in fornication, and those who were sexually impure, they had come to Jesus in their brokenness looking to be healed. One such woman was Mary of Magdala. Many believe her to have been a prostitute prior to her conversion. They knew that Jesus was not for stoning people who had committed this sin, but they also knew Moses' law, and they, and they thought maybe they had him in a spot here. And so, in essence, they were trying to pit him against Moses in the law and his own teaching and philosophy. They thought they had Jesus between a rock and a hard place. And as I thought about this this week, I thought about the Pharisees and the scribes, how that they must have had in the back room of the temple some sort of a boardroom with a big conference table, and maybe not, but this is just my imagination working, and they had some sort of a whiteboard up on the wall, and they had a list of ways we can try to trap Jesus. And these men would sit around on this boardroom, and they would brainstorm about, well, let's try this tactic, and let's see if we can come at it from this angle. And, hey, I got it. He has... Publicans and sinners, clearly he's not for stoning those wrapped up in adultery. Let's get someone in the very act and let's bring them and throw them in front and we'll pin them between a rock and a hard place and we'll see what he does. So the setup of the woman, their strategy against Christ, they're doing everything they can to discredit Jesus and to tear him down. And listen, I had to have to say that if they had done that to me in my, uh, in my uh, finite mind and my finite abilities, I would have felt trapped. 
But there's no trapping the one who is infinite and all-powerful. Number three, we see Christ's authority. Christ's authority. We saw the woman's adultery, the Pharisee's ambush. Let's see how Christ handles this so brilliantly. Letter A, first notice his insight into the Pharisees. Look at verse number 6. John chapter 8 and verse 6. The Bible says, This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Take your Bible to Psalm chapter 38. Psalm 38. Jesus was in no rush to answer their pressing questions. He's teaching. Uh, he has those sitting around him, standing around him. He's teaching truth as uh, those uh, uh, as one with authority, unlike the Pharisees. They bring this woman in and they interrupt the entire uh, teaching time and throw her down. And Jesus just sort of shuts down. He kneels down. He begins to write in the sand while this woman is embarrassed. Can you imagine the embarrassment this woman must have felt? The uh, being yanked out of a bedroom stark naked in a bed, a robe wrapped around her, her drug out into a public setting, thrown down on the ground in front of everyone with her sin publicly declared for everyone to hear. Oh, the embarrassment, the awkwardness of the moment, the Pharisees with the stones. Jesus bends down and begins to write in the sand as though He does not hear them. Look at Psalm 38. Look at verse 13. This is a messianic uh, prophecy. But I as a deaf man heard not. And I was as a dumb man that opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't speak. He just sat there. He didn't need to answer. And let me just give you a very practical point tonight. Just because someone accuses you or is coming after you doesn't mean you have to say a word. You listening tonight? It is our nature to just try to defend ourselves. Someone comes at you. They Are, are the married people in the room listening to me tonight? The married people are not. Just because your spouse gets emotional and levies something at you, sometimes the best thing you can do is sit there and say nothing. And that's going to make them more upset. Well, maybe eventually you need to respond, but in the moment you need to gather your emotions and you need to make sure things are right. Jesus, he didn't feel the need to answer their question. He was below them. Some years ago, I got a call. And um, it was Saturday, I was having a rough day, and I got a call, and the guy on the other end of the phone said, Hello, is this Pastor Richard Lejeune? And I said, Yes, it is. It was an unknown number. I now know don't answer calls from unknown numbers based on this event. He said, My name is, and he gave his name, I don't remember anymore. He said, You're live on the radio. And this is being recorded for a podcast. He said, it has been told me that you and your church are spending X amount of dollars to fix up your lobby instead of sending that money to the mission field. How does it feel to know that you have a state-of-the-art snack bar in your church while people are dying and going to hell? Choose your next words carefully. I, uh, I was deathly quiet for about 30 seconds. He said, sir, are you still there? I said, yes, sir, I am. I said, uh, uh, what we do at our church is none of your business. Have a good day. Click. <laughs> um, 
You don't have to answer. The Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Uh, Jesus, as they're forcing him into an answer, instead he kneels down and he writes in the sand. Now, the age-old theological question, speculation, uh, uh, people love to talk about this and speculate, what did Jesus write in the sand? What did he write that got them to put down their stones? I'm going to share with you my speculation here in a few minutes. And again, it is purely speculation. There's no way to know that. Um, you King James users, I heard someone say he wrote KJV in the sand. Uh, uh, but uh, no, that's just meant to uh, be tongue-in-cheek funny. But what did Jesus write in the sand? Well, let's go back. Let's take just a moment and let's look at what Jesus, how, what the hand of Jesus wrote throughout Scripture. Turn over to Deuteronomy 9. I find three places in Scripture where the hand of God wrote something on earth. Deuteronomy 9, we find his writing on stone. His writing on stone. Look at Deuteronomy 9 and look at verse number 10. Moses had been given the commandments. He went down and he broke them when he saw the great depravity and sin of God's people around the golden uh, uh, calf. And then he goes back up later into the mount. And this time the Lord is going to write with his own hand the Ten Commandments on the stone. Deuteronomy 9, look at verse 10. And the Lord delivered unto me... Uh, Moses says, two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with uh, you in the mount out in the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. So the Ten Commandments were given to us by God directly with His finger writing on ta- uh, stone tablets. Those tablets would later be put in the Ark of the Covenant. So the second time we find writing of the hand of God is found in Daniel chapter 5. Turn over there. Daniel chapter 5. So the first time he wrote on stone. The second time he wrote on a wall or wrote on plaster. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse number 5. The Bible says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Look down to verse 24. The Bible says, Then was the part of the hand uh, sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the writing that was written, Mini, Mini, Tikal Ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mini, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tikal, thou art weighed in the balance and are found wanting. Pares, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So the first time was the writing of the law. The second time was the writing of condemnation of Belteshazzar and his wicked kingdom following Nebuchadnezzar. The third time we find the writing of the hand of God is back in our passage in John chapter 8. So what did he write? What did he write? If God wanted us to know, then he would have told us. But he didn't tell us. He didn't tell us. Um, When we get to heaven, I'm sure he'll tell us. I hope he'll tell us. But what he wrote uh, pricked the consciences of these wicked men who were looking uh, to stone this woman. Let me read for you some verses. Uh, Turn over to Matthew 23 uh, with me, if you will. I'm going to read Jeremiah 17. The Bible says this, The sins of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with a point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart, 
and upon the horns of your altar. So when they had sinned in their heart, they knew that they had done wrong. And uh, Jesus' meek and mild way of handling them pricked their heart because their sins were written on the tables of their heart. Look at Matthew 23, and Jesus tells us, He gives us the inside scoop on who the Pharisees were. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness, of all uncleanness, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisies and iniquity. I thought long and hard about what Jesus may have written. And again, I'm going to tell you, the Bible does not say. And so what I'm about to tell you is just strictly my speculation. Don't go out here and say, this is what was written in the sand, because the Bible does not say. But I wonder if the first time he knelt down, if in a column he did not write down their names of the men standing there one after the other, he didn't take the time to just write their names in the sand. And as they pressed him, he stood up and maybe said, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone at her. And the second time he knelt down, if he didn't start writing down the names of their mistresses one at a time, and they began to drop their stones and walk away. These men were guilty of the same act that they were accusing her of and thereby had no authority to actually stone her. Now, is that what happened? We'll find out when we get to heaven. What He may have just written the Ten Commandments in the sand. We don't know what was written in the sand, uh, but uh, whatever he wrote caused their consciences to be pricked and them to drop those stones and walk away. Um, why is it they could not stone her? Why could not they follow through? Turn over to Genesis 38. Why couldn't they follow through? Because they themselves were guilty of either the same sin or a sin close enough to it. They had disqualified themselves from being her executioners. Genesis 38, we find the story of Tamar and Judah. Tamar was the daughter-in-law to Judah. Her husband had passed away and she was supposed to be given to the next brother in line to raise up children by her dead husband. That was the Jewish custom of how things were handled. When Judah refused to give her a brother to be a husband, uh, she then played the role of a prostitute or a harlot. She knew where Judah would be walking uh, uh, to and from a, a work a, a work job of cattle. And so she covered her face with a heavy veil and uh, she put on the, the, the attire of a harlot and she, uh, she was uh, hired by Judah to sleep with her father-in-law, uh, he, him not knowing who she was. And the two of them had, uh, had uh, sexual relations and then uh, there was an exchange of some of his own personal effects uh, 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 for uh, the sexual services. And look with me at verse number 24 of Genesis 38. And it came to pass about three months after, after what? After Judah and Tamar had been intimate, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar, thy daughter-in-law, hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt." 
when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelet and staff. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not the Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. You know what else he didn't do? He didn't stone her. You know why he didn't stone her? Because he had no authority to stone her, because he was the one who had slept with her. During this month of June, while rainbow flags are everywhere, and our government in corporate America is force-feeding this wicked agenda, Christians need to do inventory in their own hearts. Sir, that woman wearing yoga pants in front of you at Walmart yesterday, did you stare at her a little too long? I'm just getting right down on the bottom shelf where we live. And I don't talk a lot about modesty. Men, Listen, men need to be modest just like women do. But ladies, yoga pants is just flat out of sin. I don't know how to say it. I'm speaking as a man here. You put on a pair of yoga pants and you walk around, you might as well have just painted your legs and walked into the store. Put something on. Just put something on. God gave you a body. It's beautiful. Clothe it. Clothe it. Be appropriate in what you wear. Put on the uniform of a Christian. And don't cause your Christian brother to stumble or the men around you to be tempted. You say, well, when a woman's wearing a pair of yoga pants around a man, man, he shouldn't look. You're right. He absolutely shouldn't look. You shouldn't tempt him to look either. There's not a man in the room that doesn't agree with what I just said. Every man in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's just as wrong for him to look as it is for you to provoke him to look. But guys, it doesn't make it right. There's, I can stand up here and I can use my voice of influence and I can encourage the handful of people here tonight to be careful about the way they dress. But for every one of you sitting in this room today, there are tens of thousands of people uh, in the Stratford area who I have no influence over. And you know what? They're going to dress how they're going to dress, and you can't control that. But men, you can control where you place your eyes. And you can control what you look at on the screen of your phone. We want to get all indignant about the month of June. And I'm right there with you. I think it's good we do some inventory. And ladies, it's okay for you to be upset about Target selling uh, transgender bathing suits to children. I'm not personally shopping at Target right now because I think that that's wicked. And if you shop there, that's your choice, that's your prerogative. I'm not looking to judge anyone here. I'm personally going to avoid Target. You say, well, are you avoiding Bud Light too? I was already avoiding Bud Light. Amen. I'm a pastor. I don't drink, okay? Uh, but um, uh, but uh, listen, uh, uh, I'm avoiding that place. But ma'am, that steamy romance movie you watched recently, did that conjure up a natural affection within you? you know, we, we, we watch things on Amazon Prime Video and Netflix, and we watch things on TV. Uh, preachers used to get up and preach against going to the movies. 
And you know why? Because you go watch a G-rated movie at the movies, There's I don't believe there's anything sinful about that. But the next room over, you know what they're showing? They're showing things that a Christian shouldn't be watching, and you get in the habit of going to the movies, and the next thing you know, you're in the room you shouldn't be in, and you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. Now you don't need to go to the movies to watch something sinful. You just open up the Netflix app on your TV, and it's staring at you right there as a suggestion, and you get lured in, and you get sucked in, and now you may not be running around with the same-sex partner, but let me tell you what we are doing. We're wrapped up in sexual sin, and we're like the Pharisees. We come to church, and we put on our dress clothes, and we carry our Bibles, and we act like we got it all together, and we're just like the Pharisees, where we have it all together on the outside, but inwardly we're full of dead men's bones, and we're wicked. You know what, Christians, our voice would carry a lot further in the world against immorality if we ourselves were not immoral inside. We find it very hard to take a stand against immorality when we know that in the deepest, darkest corners of our life, there are things there that displease God and hurt the heart of God. Jesus looks at these men and He says, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And one at a time, these men drop their stones, one at a time, and they leave. As Jesus continues to write with his finger in the sand. And then, when he looks up, it's just him and this woman left who was caught in adultery. We see letter A, his insight into the Pharisees. Letter B, we see his instruction to the woman. His instruction to the woman. Look at John chapter 8. And look at verse number 9. And we're bringing this all full circle right here. John 8, verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, being at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Oh, you can just imagine the horror that has taken place in this poor lady's heart. Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus had the moral ground and the authority to condemn her or forgive her. And what did He choose? He chose to forgive her, but He did so with a condition. With a condition. Here here it was. He told her, go and sin no more. I think of Isaiah 55, 7, where the prophet says, let the the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. When we forsake our wicked ways and we turn from our unrighteousness, God is quick to pour His mercy and His grace and pardon us from our iniquity. Turn over to Romans 6. We'll finish the sermon here this evening. When Jesus saved you, when Jesus saved you, He showed mercy and grace to your hell-bound, wicked soul. He lifted the eternal condemnation and granted you eternal life. What is His command to me and you? Go and sin no more. Go And walk in the light. Go and set aside darkness. Go and be a a bright light in a dark world. Look at Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Paul says, 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The forgiven are to live free from habitual sin because of the great grace that He has shown. When we are dismissive of sin or we yawn at sin, then what we are doing is we are abusing His great grace that He gave us at salvation. Tonight, White Oak Baptist Church and those listening in via live stream and our visitors that are present here this evening, let me just encourage you tonight, let's not be Pharisees. Let's be gracious to others. But let's be men and women who don't take advantage of God's grace. We love the Lord. And we're doing our very best to walk in light. I think we need an old-fashioned revival of holiness in our church. I'm going to say this as we close. Holy expressions that are outward and are not birthed from inward are phony and shallow and will fall off. But when you get your heart right with God, and you get that cleaned up, and you let that bleed out into the outside, then those holy expressions will last long and will matter. I'm not asking you if you look holy this evening. I'm asking you if you are holy. I'm not asking you if you put on a good front when you come to church. I'm asking you if you're holy when no one else is watching. It's a battle, it's a struggle, but it's a struggle that Christians need to fight and find the victory where we need to find the victory. Lord God, tonight I pray that You would convict us. Start with me, Lord. Help us to be people who are holy. You commanded us in Scripture, be holy as You are holy. Oh, what a tall order. What a great command. Lord God, tonight may we be not so quick to condemn sinful people. Yes, we should condemn sin, but Lord, help us to first begin with condemning the sin that lies within our own hearts. Holy Spirit of God, I pray right now that You would convict each and every heart of the sin that's keeping us from liberty and freedom in Christ. Show us where we have abused grace in our lives. May we stop doing that. May we cease from that behavior. May may we be men and women who walk in the light and no longer in darkness. Lord God, begin with each of us here in this place. And may we be examples all over the Stratford area and beyond of holy Christians.